Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The question, what do I want? We make it out to be this big, all-encompassing question like one day, Srini Rao, you're going to wake up and you'll have it and you'll know with absolute certainty what the rest of your life is about. And... What I suggest is that's a false idea. And when we build it up in that way, we make the question so big that it's too hard to answer. And so instead, the way that I see it today and the way that I teach it today is to say, don't see it as a question with an answer. See it as a process. See it as a question that you answer over time. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Jeff, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Trainee, thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So, you know, I was introduced to you by way of our mutual friend, Kamal Ravikant, who was a guest here uh, a while back and also a speaker at an event that we did. And when he told me a little bit about what you're doing and what you're up to, I was, uh, it was one of those sort of, hell yeah, I want to definitely talk to Jeff conver- uh, moments because it was so weird and unusual. But before we get there, um, I want to start with a question that I've asked a handful of times, which has been really interesting. Uh, do you have siblings? If so, what birth order were you? And what impact did that have on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? <laughs> Great question. I do. I have two brothers. I'm, so I'm from Australia. My parents are English, uh, English immigrants who moved to Australia in the 60s. And, you know, with this spirit of adventure, they picked up and left England. They were what were called at the time 10 Bob Poms. And that was because the Australian government was basically subsidizing people to move to Australia for 10 quid but the catch was if you got there and you wanted to return you had to pay not only the full fare back but the full fare there as well and my parents didn't have any money and so they ended up in Australia in the late 60s and I have two brothers I'm the middle child my older brother is about 18 months older my younger brother is about three years younger than me And, you know, what role did that play? I'm sure it played a lot of different roles. And I think part of what our family is a little bit different is, is the middle child. Uh, I might not be the stereotypical middle child in that in some ways I exhibit some of those characteristics of the first child, the independence, the striving, the uh, creating this new path as my parents did, moving to the US 15 years ago and so on. But it's certainly, you know, I reflect on that often. It's certainly a big part of of how I became, how I am. Hmm. So walk me through a sort of early childhood to where you ended up going with your life, like what you ended up doing and how it's led to what you're doing today, which we will talk about in quite a bit of detail. The early childhood was, you know, my, my family is a, is a, a strange collection of Australian and English. My parents have, uh, were not well educated. They didn't go to university. They've only ever worked in, you know, manual type jobs for their life. 
But my mother has, for the last 35 years, always been significantly involved in the community. She was heavily involved in the community, then she decided she was going to run for local government in the, in the mid-80s. And she's done that ever since. She's now been elected eight or nine times. And the thing that was, there were two things that were really instilled in me being young. One is that, you know, this, there's a whole world out there that you can really go after, that you can really imagine your life as you want it to be and then go create it. And then two was that that comes from real serious work. It comes from a serious commitment. And early in life, I worked part-time jobs as a young kid, waking up early and delivering papers, afternoon jobs. And that really led me to, uh, to see kind of an idea that said, look, if I want my life to be better, I can work hard and I can do that. And the extreme of that, Trini, was then in, in high school, I basically woke up. Something fundamentally shifted in me. And that was before that, I didn't see school as being important. I just figured I would keep working hard in my part-time jobs and I'd keep getting ahead in life that way. But what really fundamentally shifted was I saw, wow, you know, my education has the opportunity to fundamentally transform my life. And even though I'd never really studied in school, I was in a very regular public school in suburban Melbourne, Australia. I ded dedicated myself and I, I literally made that my life was to get the best grades I could. And I went to university as, you know, as I said, my parents had never done. And in university, I just felt so grateful that I had had this enormous opportunity to leap and to transform my life. And in university, I did the same thing. I put my head down and I, you know, I worked extraordinary hours in university. I got top grades and that landed me, you know, what I perceived to be the best job in Australia at the time, which is it landed me the only job that Goldman Sachs offered in Australia. And I really felt like Srini had just catapulted me to, you know, a handful of years of really working hard had catapulted me and transformed, you know, what was possible for me. And I was on a new trajectory. And then it was only a few years later, I completely stepped back from that as well. Interesting. So two questions come from that. Um, you mentioned that there was a fundamental shift. And I've asked this, you know, in numerous different ways over the last several years. I mean, what do you think enables people to make fundamental shifts in their lives and why doesn't it happen for so many people? Hmm. It's a great question. Um, I'll give you, I'll give you what I, I'll give you what I perceive to be the truth if, if I may, which is I believe that our path comes from deeper inside of us. I believe that whatever it is that we are destined to do, if that's a word that people like to use is, is kind of laid out inside of us or comes to us and we get these lightning bolts come to us from time to time and they are fundamental shifts and I think the key to your question is do you follow it or not and I've had three of these lightning bolts in my life and to be very candid with you I haven't known how not to follow it and it's led me to do you know it's led me to make three big shifts in my life that in some ways Everybody, you know, most people who knew me thought were completely crazy and were, you know, were really new paths for me, but I didn't know how not to. I felt so compelled that even though they in some ways were crazy and seemed a little strange, I didn't know how not to follow that intuition and follow that path. Huh. Um, 
Okay, so one other thing about this. You mentioned that you came from sort of this blue-collar upbringing, and usually, you know, a blue-collar upbringing to Goldman Sachs is not the traditional sort of path you'd expect. Um, And I'm curious, you know, what do you think it is about you that enabled you to overcome the environment that you were in, and how do other people overcome the environments they're in? It's a question that I'm very focused on in my my work today because a topic that, that uh, you know, that I spend a lot of time on that I worry about is, you know, where are we as a country? What sort of upward mobility do we have? Has it gotten harder for people? And I think in some ways it has. And I, I, I come back to my parents and I say, look, my parents never had much their whole life, but they always had optimism. They always had a sense of belief of what was possible. And then, Shreeni, to be very candid, it's the willingness to do whatever it takes. And, you know, I've worked seven days a week for as long as I can remember going back to high school. And it was that it was that will and that grit and that willingness to do it. And I'd be very, I think that's lucky. I think I'm lucky that I was gifted with that because not everyone has that. And so if you don't have that or you don't have some of these other things, how do you find other ways to do it? I think things like your podcast, I've read thousands of books on personal development to, you know, when I started all this work back at Goldman Sachs and that was my second fundamental shift and I read thousands of books on all this and there's a lot of great resources out there. Yet as you write about and you talk about and a lot of your guests talk about that path to to just keep moving, to keep taking steps, to keep making your life what you want it to be is can be a very challenging path and only those who are willing to really truly look it in the face and walk it. Look, I got a lot from your story, Shreeni, looking at the, the moves you made, the decisions you made coming out of business school, how you felt about your career and, you know, in some regards, it, it takes that. You have to be willing to break that and, and go with it and that can be very hard for people. Okay, so uh, tell me about leaving Goldman Sachs because you know I, I remember when I was in college. The reason I'm, I'm so curious about this is that getting a job at Goldman Sachs was kind of like the gold standard of employment. It was kind of like okay, you've basically set yourself on a trajectory for like you know ex- like success at levels that most of us only dream about. And I, I remember this specifically very much so because one of my friends got an offer from Goldman Sachs and it was kind of like our lives changed in that moment. Like we kind of knew at that point and I, I've lost touch with him since, but it made me think it's like, okay, that was sort of the standard by which I judged my own life by uh, not realizing, you know, that comparing to other people is really detrimental. But what is it that caused you to, to leave? I mean, what was the wake up call there? Uh, <laughs> Trini, it was five years of work, my friend. It took me five years to leave Goldman Sachs. And even the day that I resigned, it still took me another three months to leave the building. And, <laughs> and you know, in some regards, people look at my career moves and think they're crazy. But I spent many years being very methodical about it. And when I got to the end, Trini, I couldn't be methodical. All I realized really was after five years of researching the question, what do I want? I mean, obsessively researching what do I want? I didn't know. I still didn't know. And I was at this point in 2006, the market was as good as it had ever been. My career was on fire and it was literally the start of the new year. 
and I walked into my boss's office and I told him I was done. And that was the three months. That's with all these conversations with people saying, why would you leave? Why would you leave to do quote unquote nothing? (laughs) Right? Like, why would you leave Goldman Sachs to do nothing? You know, do you know how much, you know, as a vice president, I was on my track to partner. Do you know, you know, how much money you'll make this year and all the typical stuff. And, you know, I still have great friends at Goldman. I still have great admiration for the firm. But after five years of really focusing on these big questions in my life, there were really two key conclusions I had reached, Shrini. And to be honest, this sounds a little bit pathetic, which is I'd realized two things. One was I didn't know what I wanted and that was okay. And the, and the second thing I realized is I've done enough work to know that this isn't where I want to be right now. So if this is where I don't want to be, then I have to leave. And I didn't know what I was going to do day one. I had no idea, but I knew that I needed to leave and explore it. And that was five years of work just to get to that point. As I said, it feels kind of pathetic to think I spent five years really focusing on these big questions to still not get to an answer other than, you know what, it's time for me to leave. Okay. So uh, my, you know, sort of question, uh, I think, and a question probably in a lot of people's minds is how do you answer that question of finding out um, what it is you want. Like, I mean, you mentioned reading tons of books, you know, going through all this stuff. Um, if somebody, you know, were to ask you that question of how do I start to figure out what it is that I want, where would you even got, where would you, where would you get them to start? Like, where would you have them start? Great question. That's where I really wanted to break it down in my first book. My first book is, is called do what you want on wall street an idea and the brand that i use is do what you want it's the idea that came to me so strongly back then what do i want i don't know i just want to do what i love i want to do what i want even though i didn't know what that meant and i believe that one of the hardest questions in that is there's really two questions what do you want and how do you get it and the first one for a lot of us is the harder question and it was a really hard question for me yet in hindsight Srini, it seemed really quite easy And what I developed really was a process for doing that, which I laid out in my first book. And the process for doing that, it really begins with an idea that says, hey, you know that question? It's a false question. The question, what do I want? We make it out to be this big, all-encompassing question like one day, Srini Rao, you're going to wake up and you'll have it. And you'll know with absolute certainty what the rest of your life is about. And what I suggest is that's a false idea. And when we build it up in that way, we make the question so big that it's too hard to answer. And so instead, the way that I see it today and the way that I teach it today is to say, don't see it as a question with an answer. See it as a process. See it as a question that you answer over time. And so if you're not sure of what you want, start to take action, start to take steps, start to explore new things and then allow that to keep moving. And as you keep moving, keep making new decisions, but don't get caught in the illusion that one day you'll have this idea that you absolutely are certain of what you want. Look, we all know it. We know very successful people who've built an entire life around a certain area. They say, well, I don't even know what I want to do when I grow up because a lot of people are just kind of letting it play out over time. And my view is, so there's really two steps. Start with that vision. What is that vision of what you want? And Trini, I like to do a, you know, a, a, kind of a you know five-minute hypnotic induction on that where you really step into it and you'll visualize that life that you want. 
you visualize the career you want, and you just imagine what it would be. And then you literally just pull on the next thread, Trini. So you give up thinking about, well, what does it look like 10 years from now? And what's the big vision? And you just pull on the next thread. And you say, hey, if I just pull on that next thread, I'm going to be moving in the right direction. And now you've got momentum. And now you just keep moving your way there over time. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I think it, it, to me, you know, it, you brought up a really good point. You said there's really not just an answer to this question. I mean, the the whole thing is just a process. Like it's a question that you're constantly answering. Uh, I mean, when I look at it, I realize like there's no way you could have predicted or planned so much of what I've ended up doing with my life or career. Like none of it could have been mapped out in some sort of 10 year plan. Uh by saying at the very beginning of it, this is exactly what I wanted to look like. There's just no way that's possible because, uh, you know, I, I think somebody I was talking to, a few, I think yesterday on a podcast, we were saying, you know, it's kind of like you're, you're basically going down a path and you hit a curve. And the thing is that you can stand where you're at, but you're not going to be able to see around the curve until you actually just take a step in that direction. That's right. I love that way of putting it. And we often feel like, these things are real crossroads, right? We make every one of these decisions feel like, well, if I don't get into the right college, then my life is down that path. If I don't land that right first job, then my life is down that path. Yet when you live long enough and you look back, you see that life is certainly not that definitive and that we never know where these paths are headed. As you say, you never know what's around that next bend. And the only way that you find out is by is by taking a peek and you actually hit Trini on what I believe is is really the the hardest part of this question and this topic and it you know you might even generalize it according to the Stephen Pressfield notion of resistance which is when people ask that question it gets too big and they get stuck and so it's not even so much about getting to the absolute right answer but it's about ensuring that you keep moving past that point, that decision point of feeling stuck. And the way you do that is by peeking around that corner, is by you know making a new friend, doing a new hobby. Maybe you even experiment a little bit in your career. But the only way that you don't get there is when you just stop. And a lot of people stay there. We know that. You know, a lot of people are stuck because they're in a comfortable job. You know, every year, 65% of people, you know, surveyed by Gallup are either dissatisfied or actively dissatisfied in their jobs. Yet that question that Steve Jobs promoted so strongly, find what you love. You've got to keep looking for it. A lot of people really either give up or they don't feel able to do it. And I think part of what, you know, all of our work is about is really, you know, how do you make it easier for people to really keep looking to find easier ways to explore it and to keep moving towards that career in life that they truly, truly want. Okay, so I have um, one other question. I'm curious about what the time at Goldman Sachs taught you about a high achiever success and how that is applied to what you've done going forward, like what those lessons were that you've applied to your life going forward. Oh, enormous amount, enormous amount. And I, I told you earlier that I'd watched your interview from a few years back with, with Glenn Beck and Glenn said something like that, right? He said, I know so many of these, you know, highly successful, wealthy people who don't seem happy or fulfilled. And, you know, perhaps, Shreeni, a good way to put it is to say that when I left Goldman and I was, I was telling my bosses 
you know, I didn't know what I wanted, but I had to leave. And they said, well, you know, why would you do that? Well, you know what? Today, a number of those folks are either clients of mine or they've been clients of mine. And these were my bosses way back then who are very senior, who've done extremely well. And part of what I learned from my journey at Goldman Sachs was that I was just thinking of these topics at a much younger age than a lot of my colleagues. Because I was looking ahead 15, 20 years of my life and saying, when I get there, is that what I want? Is this the life that I truly want? And the real catalyst for me, Srini, was, you know, I was in Menlo Park in 2000 in technology investment banking and the bubble burst and half the office got let go. And that was when I really stepped back and I said, what's my life about? What do I want it to be about? What really matters to me? And so many of the lessons that have become who I am were learned at Goldman Sachs because I came from nowhere, right? I came from a family that never earned a lot of money and I got to a place where people were making a lot of money surrounded by a certain type of lifestyle. And the, the key lessons coming out it for me were really what do I want? What really matters to me? And what is this about? What's life about for us? What is it about? What is success for you? What's your definition of success? Look, there's a lot of stuff in our society that's so wrong on these topics, right? To look at bankers and say, you just do it for the money. That's just as wrong as to look at someone else and say, well, you're not willing to work hard or something. Now, we all have a different path. And I learned at Goldman that, that really that secret is to find your path, to find what really matters to you. So uh, one other question I have about this is um, how being around you know, such substantial sums of, of wealth and seeing probably, I'm sure, uh, people acquire an amount, amount, immense amounts of wealth, not just as, as people who work there, but the people that you've had as clients uh, at a place like an investment bank. Um, you know, I, I feel like when I ask this question, it's always to people who have kind of been there, done that, had the money, and they're like, yeah, it doesn't lead to what you think it will. And of course, you know, there's the flip side of that argument of, yeah, that's easy to say when you've had the money. So I, I just, I'm so curious to hear your perspective about this. Hmm. Uh, I would tell, as, a, as an example, I have a client of mine who is president of a bank, uh, is incredibly successful. When I first started do, working with private client training, it was never my, it was never my vision. The vision was, I got to leave and write this book. I got to write this book about how do we create the lives you want? How do you get what you want? And that was my first book. I didn't imagine that I would take on private clients. And when I did, Srini, I thought that would all be about winning. You know, my work's all about how do you become the best you can be? How can you develop skills and processes and set goals and really go for it? Yet this example, right, this president of the bank, what do I, I only work on one thing with him and that's training him to feel happy. And I don't mean, I don't use that in a light way. I mean, truly, truly fulfilled that he's reached this level in his career and life where he's got a lot of material success. He's got a great family, but he doesn't feel how he wants to feel. And how do you train that? And my view is that happiness is a skill, whether you've made the money or you haven't made the money. It's a skill set that we learn to develop. And the truth is, Shereni, that there's some aspects to the path of success that are inconsistent with happiness. And one of them is the notion that the mind, right, the way the mind works is a hard-charging, ambitious, successful person is typically always looking forward. And they're looking forward to when I get what I call when you get there, right? So if you're at Goldman Sachs and you're a partner and you've done well and you've made you know, a lot of money by every person's standard, 
The brain doesn't just say, oh, well, I'm successful, and they stop. The brain says, all right, where do I need to get to next? And then they get to that point. They say, well, where do I need to get to after that? And I remember something great I remember from Gretchen Rubin where she said, you know, money does make you happy. It's an illusion to say that money doesn't make you happy. And there's a lot of great cliches about it, you know, better off being rich and unhappy than poor and unhappy and whatnot. Look, we all know this. The truth is that money it can make your life a lot easier, can make your life a lot better. But when it comes down to it, there's only one thing that leads to fulfillment and happiness. And that's how you create your life in your mind, how you how you train yourself to live your life no matter what your life is. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hmm. All right. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. Um, first, you know, I guess it's funny because we've made a lot of sort of, uh, you know, references to your actual work, but what got me interested was, uh, something that isn't really related, but a tangent. So I guess, you know, one of the questions that might come up is what does Jeff actually do? So let's answer that question and then we'll get into what I want to get to next. (laughs) Got it. What do I do? So when, 
when I left Wall Street, it was it was so I left Goldman. I took time off, and that was a period where I was exploring, trying to figure out well, what does matter to me? How do I figure this out? And truth is, I didn't figure it out. I went back to Wall Street for a few years, and it was there that I really was conceiving a different way of. I really kind of came up with this idea that, you know, Shree again. This was the third turn that seemed nuts. Was I went from this thing of what do I want, what do I want, and what matters to me, and not knowing, and then one day it just struck me like a, a, a great cliche, a ton of bricks, but it just struck me that actually this is all this is what I care most about. I'm obsessed with these ideas. I want to share it. How do I share it? And I had no idea, and that led to a whole new adventure. But what do I actually do? I spend my time writing and creating content. I have a bunch of books in the hopper and whatnot, and I spend time with private clients. And there's really two things I do with private clients. I do one-on-one -on -one work with uh, senior Wall Street people, leaders in some in traditional industries and some other fields. And my work is all about how do you create the career and life that you truly want. And I build custom programs for people. You know, having read thousands of books on personal development, I saw a very new way of doing it, Trini. And that way of doing it is is very specific. It's very targeted and it's about building programs of continuous improvement. So my view, Shreen, is if you want to be wealthier or if you want to be happier, it's the same, it's a different solution, but it's, it's the same process, which is design a process that leads you from where you are to where you want to get to. And so a lot of what I'd really, what I do with my clients is three things. One is mental conditioning. I've spent many years researching the mind. It's perhaps my most favorite and interesting area. And training with, you know, who I think are the best teachers of the mind in the world. So I condition people's minds. I give them exercise. I create exercises. I do some, you know, quote unquote programming, which is really more like conditioning. Two is I build processes, expert processes. Shreen, if you want to get, you know, if you're a Goldman Sachs and you're a partner and you want to run the firm, what's the process to do that? What's, if you're an entrepreneur and your business is small and you want it to be big, what's the process to do that? And then three is skills. And a lot of my work has come down to skills building. What does it take to build skills? Not just what are the skills, but what are processes that you need to build to become excellent? Because to truly do these things we're talking about and do, you know, I think of all my work as transformational change. To make transformational leaps, you have to become excellent at whatever it is that you're focused on. Hmm. All right. Um Let's do a little bit more of a dive into this. Uh, so let's say often one of the things that I see uh, quite frequently is that there is frequently a big gap between where people are and where they want to be. And it sounds like a lot of the work that you do bridges the gap. The thing is that I often see people get caught up in this endless cycle of just looking for the next book, the next seminar, the next solution. And they constantly seem to be, you know, attempting to improve, but not actually making any real progress. Mm. Uh, so, you know, what causes that and how do you, how do you break that cycle? Like, and have you, have you seen that cycle with people that you've worked with? Absolutely. Not so much with people I've worked with, more so much more with people that I've trained with. You know, as you mentioned with Kamal, I met Kamal at a seminar where we were learning some really cool stuff. And, you know, of all the seminars I've been to, you see people who, you know, we all know are seminar junkies and they show up at seminar after seminar. And, uh, and 
Part of that is because they're trying to seek as much knowledge as they can. Part of it, in my view, is that a lot of people aren't integrating that knowledge. And it's like reading a book. You know, a lot of people don't, you know, don't read that often. But my view is that is <laughs> whatever is learning comes down to having a process of learning. So if you come back to university or college, you don't learn in college by hearing the teachers drone on. And that's what a lot of seminars are. You can sit there, you can collect a lot of information, but the real learning that we all get, the way that we all grow is in the way we engage with that information. You know, Napoleon Hill has a great quote about, you know, in, you know knowledge isn't power. You know, power is when you take knowledge and through an a plan of action, put it to work. And on that topic of learning, what I think is a real challenge for all of us is rather than attending 10 seminars, and Srini, I fell into this fault myself, rather than reading thousands of personal development books, how would I do it differently? I would choose a smaller number and absolutely master them. Just like a textbook in school, right? It's not about going to 10 seminars. It's when you come home from the first one, how do you build for yourself an action plan to actually develop those skills? And then what I refer to as daily exercises. How do you, if, you've, if you're learning a new skill, how do you break that down into actions that you're going to take every day and then sit down and actually take them? So rather than just take that knowledge and think of that as learning, to convert knowledge to learning comes through a conversion of review, a way to review that information, and then a way to practice it, to actually put it to work and learn that way. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes plenty of sense. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate that perspective because I think it's it's really, really true. It's 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 so easy to just keep on sort of, you know, spinning wheels and, and consuming stuff endlessly. And, and I, I've kind of realized the same thing. Like I read a lot of books and, you know, they range from personal development books to things that I'm just interested in. Um, but like having a process to to actually you know, get value out of that information as opposed to just reading it. Um, is, is one of those things like that has made a tremendous difference for me, especially as a writer. I yes. have to be aware of, of, you know, okay, how do these ideas affect what I'm doing? Someone who read the Trump book um, called me up a, a, a couple of weeks ago and he said to me, uh, I want to get really good at this stuff. How do I do that? You know, send me, you know, will you share with me, you know, all the things I can do to become an expert at this covert influence and I suggested to him, I said, no, no, actually, let's just stop. How much have you studied of this in the past? And he said, none. <laughs> and I said, let's start here. Pick up Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and literally spend two months not reading it. You might read it in two days, but take the key principles and spend two months practicing each one of them. And if you can do that, right, as you said, if you can do that, you can truly master influence at that level very, very quickly. It's though that the intendancy for all of us, and again, I made that mistake, is to buy 10 books on influence and read them and say, I read all these books, but until you can actually do it fluidly, unless you can do it effortlessly, you haven't learned the skill. All right. So you made reference to the Trump book, which is uh, actually what got my attention about your story. And I, I thought it was really fascinating because, you know, we were just talking before, like neither you or I are politically motivated, but I, I thought it was so interesting that it was like, let's talk about the Trump campaign through the psychology of influence perspective, because you're right. It's, it's fascinating. How does somebody like him end up getting as far as he has? So um, I will turn the mic to you at this point. I mean, I would love to hear kind of how, one, how the book came about, but more importantly, like, what is it that we can learn from all of this? 
I love your perspective on it, Trini, and that's what uh, you know. That's what that what, when I was talking to Kamal, that's what we talked about because I was saying that in the media, it's very hard for me to talk about this book without all of the obvious noise around what Trump is and what Trump isn't. And, you know, as you just said, truth is, I'm not politically inclined. I've never followed Donald's career. I didn't write it about Donald. I wrote it through that lens of stepping back and really just being blown away by what this guy was doing uh, in terms of influence. And I actually, I mean, to your question, how did it come together? It came together very quickly. I wrote most of this book in three weeks which is in contrast to five years to write my first book, it literally just poured out of me while I was waiting for an edit of my third book to come through. And so it was, I'd been watching the debates and what really got me to pay attention to Donald was the first debate. In the first debate, in the first question, Megyn Kelly asked him a really, really difficult question. And when I saw what he did with that question, you know, having spent now some 15 years studying influence and being really taken by all these topics and training with the best covert influences in the world, you know, watching this, I thought to myself, he is just doing something that these other people don't even know exists. And it was so, you know, beautiful for me to watch. And, you know, to your point, the thing that I say is take, take the names out of it. Pretend he's not Trump and say you got 17 people on that stage and one of them just destroyed 16 of them, right? If this was a football team that went 16 and 0, we'd all be asking, what have they done? And that's really what I wanted to break down was even, by the way, not so much just the playbook of persuasion, because, you know, Scott Adams has been doing an incredible job breaking down the persuasion on kind of a, you know, day by day, week by week type play. And Scott's been talking about some really great stuff for a long time. What I wanted to do was break down the entire end to end, how is he winning? What has he done that's positioned him to win? Because that's what I think of all my work as, which is how do you win? How do you go from where you are to getting what you want? How did this man go from standing up and being mocked and being laughed at and being expected to go away quickly to literally demolishing the rest of them? Okay. So the question obviously is how did he do it? Great question, huh? <laughs> so here's what, I mean, I think there's, a, there's really three ways, there's three categories of ways that I break it down, Srini. And what I lay out, what I call the Trump playbook, is what is that end-to-end -end playbook? And there's really three elements to it. One is messaging and attention. You know, you talked a lot in uh, Small Army Strategy about how do you, it's not just how do you get attention, it's not just how do you build an audience, but how did he massively drive attention and then activate a movement? And that's a set of skills, right? The way that he utilized the media earned himself something like $2 billion in free media. Again, there's a lot of noise about his controversial comments and there's a lot of noise about the things he said. By the way, there should be noise about it. But what has been missed in that, and this I refer to as the Trump trap. What's been missed in that is the Trump trap is falling into the trap of paying attention to what he said and missing what he's done, right? What he said got him $2 billion in free media. What he said brought him all the attention in the world and positioned him as the leader. So that's the first part of it, if you will, which is messaging and attention. The second part is communication skills. This is a skill 
You know, the premise that I start from, Shrini, and I think, by the way, I've been having a lot of meetings with people in the political world, and they're saying, well, how did you see this? And it's from what you said up front, which is, I'm not in the political world. The real question is, how did Jeb Bush's and, you know, and all the other politicians' advisors not come up with a better strategy, in my view? If you watch what Barack Obama did in 2008, it was magical. And it was and it was based on messaging, and then the second part, which is communication skills. This is a game of influence, and that's really the premise of the book. It's not about politics. It's not about political issues. It's about can you get someone to vote for you? It's not about being a politician. It's about being someone who's able to grab people and move them, and that's a skill set of communications and influence. And then the third part of it is fight skills. This is a fight. It's a debate. And if you can't get up there and out-debate someone, then you're going to lose. And a lot of what's gotten lost in Trump, you know, people point to a lot of excuses, inciting angry voters, uh, all of his controversy, being a celebrity and whatnot. And there is, of course, a lot of reason. There's a lot of different reasons how he took such a commanding lead. Yet what I, what I think is so fascinating in the fight skills is, you know, and this is one Scott Adams has pointed out plenty, which is labeling Jeb low energy, what Scott calls a linguistic kill shot, right? How do you destroy your rivals with skills? And they're the three legs of the stool, if you will, that, that I don't lay it out in that structure. That's the way that I think about it. I lay it out end to end, attention all the way through to, you know, what I would just call kind of creating reality. Hmm. Okay. So the question that comes up in my mind is how do I do that in my own work? And I'm guessing that's exactly what somebody else is thinking as well. How do we, you know, uh, work with our own messaging and attention, uh, our communication and persuasion skills and tie it all together? I think that is the right question. And I look again, this is the narrative. This is the discussion that I love to have on this book, which is it's not about Trump. It's not about politics. It's about how do you have impact as a leader? Because, Jeb Bush, you know, spent $150 million and didn't have impact. Carly Fiorina, who had this great vision and, you know, is a highly skilled, yeah, highly skilled woman, didn't have impact. And that's the question I think a lot, of, a lot of your audience is asking is how do you have impact? And my view is that that topic of attention, see, I've had this conversation with some politicians that said, so I've just got to say controversial and weird or rude things, <laughs> right? You know, and, and that's, no, that's the opposite of it. Because the reason that Trump's controversy works for him is because it's authentic to him, right? How did he grab attention with a message that was so authentic to him? How did Bernie Sanders do the same thing? Again, just being him and making a lot of noise, yet... What really comes behind it, Trini? Because that, I think, is the real question. It's not just noise. It's how do you grab people and how do you bring them into your world? And I call that the Trump two-step and I call that the Trump four-step. And the Trump two-step and four-step are really structures of influence. So if you come back to influence, what you know you have to do to really grab people is you have to grab them emotionally. Perhaps one of the best influences in all of history and a writer in hypnosis is a man named George Estabrooks. And what George Estabrooks writes in a book of his called Hypnotism is that in order to really grab people, it's like a, pho a photographic plate. It has to be charged, or at least in the old days, it has to be charged with electrons for it to create that image. In order to really grab people, you have to grab them emotionally. 
And I, got, I get that from your work too, right? But that's what he did. It, forget about what he said and who he grabbed, which is a lot of the media, but he grabbed people emotionally in the same way that Bernie Sanders did in the same way that Barack Obama did with Yes, We Can. And then the beauty of it, though, this is the real beauty. It's not just can you grab people. It's you've got to be able to then move them with your messaging. Hmm. Right? And so the perfect example is that... Um, you know, the Trump four-step, right? He says, we don't win anymore. That's a very visceral message for a lot of Americans. A lot of people feel like they're losing, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or up and down the socioeconomic scale, a lot of people feel like they're losing. So he grabs people with that. We don't win anymore. And then the Trump, the second step is he deepens the problem. He deepens that by saying something like, we don't win in the military. We don't win in the border. We don't win in our economy. The third step is he says, hey, and we can turn this around, right? He starts to bring in optimism. We can turn this around. You know, we can build our country back. We can, we can have strong borders. We can have a strong economy. And then the fourth step in the Trump four step is he uses a very powerful closing frame, an exit frame, which is make America great again. We can make America great again. And I'd hate for this message to be, therefore, you have to say that. That's not <laughs> the point, right? You get that. Yeah, the right. point is to be able to say, what's your authentic message and how do you deliver it in a way? See, because John Kasich, for instance, had a really potent message, but he didn't have the messaging. He didn't have the structure to his messaging to really grab people and draw them in. Wow. Um I'm curious, uh, you know, you'd mentioned conversations with politicians, like based on having written this book and, and, you know, dissecting this, are you being contacted by people to work on political campaigns and messaging of that nature? I have been and I have been talking about it, but it's not my thing. You know, it's not, I don't, uh, it's not a sport, as I write in the book, it's not a sport that I enjoy following. And, you know, it's, it's not where I spend my time, but I'm very interested in engaging in the discussions because, what I think is so interesting, Srini, is what can we all learn from it? How can we all get better? And if you can't convey your message, if you can't bring people along, if you can't grab them, if you can't build a movement, you'll fail. Right? On that stage, you'll fail if you can't do all those things. And to me, that's very interesting. I'll tell you, Srini, one of the things that's quite its shocking, but it's also not shocking, is that even a lot of people in the political world don't get it or they're dismissive of it because they still think it comes back to that old playbook, right? And you know that that's a fact because otherwise Jeb Bush wouldn't have stood up without a slogan. Jeb Bush did not have a slogan. He didn't have messaging. And a lot of these topics of real influence and thinking about it this way is a different way of thinking about it relative to the way that people have thought about it for a long time. And that's because the game has changed. Hmm. Wow. Okay, so uh, two final questions for you. Uh, and this is one that I, I've been asking a lot just because it's been really interesting. What is one book, um, documentary, film, or movie, or piece of music that has profoundly influenced your life that you'd want our audience to know about? Oh, if I just give you the book on my desk right now. I mean, there's two books on my desk and maybe that's the wrong answer, but, they, but they're so common, right? If I give you my, the truthful answer, it's think and grow rich, mm. you know, I, and it's, I don't like the answer because it's, you know, it's such a common book and everyone loves it, but it, um, I mean, it, it is, you know, it is my Bible, if you will. I've read it so many times and, 
And what I believe that we all need and really, and what we want, it's not this one life-changing thing that profoundly changes our life as much as we need constant reminders. For some people, that might be a, a quote or an idea or a friend that they know they can call. And for me, it's really great books. You know, the other book I have is Benjamin Franklin's Art of Virtue on my desk. And I often, when I'm really, look, man, you know, our, our path is, you know, is not an easy path. And when I'm really looking for inspiration, I go back to the, the greats who deeply affected me and, 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 you know, deeply, I guess, challenged me to keep, to keep doing it. All right. So one last question, which I know you've heard me ask since you've listened to our interviews. Um, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, um, you said, what do I think it is that, sorry? What is it that you think makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, Shreeni, I think you've nailed that, my friend. I mean, I look at what, I look at the way that you present yourself, you present your ideas, and you're, you know, a similar theme that I came across you know, for unmistakable was, you know, Seth Godin's remarkable and purple cow, right? Remarkable. People remark about you. What I love about your definition of unmistakable is that, you know, they only, they don't even, you don't need your name on it, right? They know that it's you. And I think that that unmistakable only comes from authenticity. I think that whether, you know, in the context of the book we're talking about, Bernie Sanders or Barack Obama or Donald Trump, they're unmistakable because they're being them. And you look out in the world at people who have real impact, and that's what I see. Wow. Well, uh, this has been really, really cool. Uh, where can people learn more about your work? You can find me at jeffblades.com, G-E-O-F-F, Blades, B-L-A-D-E-S. Awesome. Well, uh, this has just been fascinating. I, I really, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to join us and share your insights and your story with our listeners. Shreeni, it's my pleasure and it's my honor. And I'm the one who's fascinated, my friend. I really appreciate everything you've done for me. And, and you know, your work has been so good and helpful to me. And I appreciate you having me on. So thank you. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that next time on The Unmistakable Creative. I grew up and my mom was, was an artist and a craftsperson. And um, so she lived in that space of constant creativity and, um, and, and uncertainty. And I think seeing that and seeing her keep going back to that place and seeing both sides of the creative spectrum in that, you know, you, you never knew if she, she, she was a potter for most of my, um, most of my younger years. And she could spend hours and hours and hours making something on a wheel and then have a kiln load full of stuff. And then she had this massive gas-fired kiln that you could literally walk into. And, you know, it would take, you know, like a full day to fire this thing. And you go through this entire process. And the whole thing is done very unscientifically. You have these little cones that, that are, are designed with different substances that melt at different heats over time. And you would just sort of like pull a brick out of the kiln and peer in with, you know, welder's goggles to see how many of the cones were melted to try and get a feel for how hot it was and how long it was going. And you go through this incredible, long, arduous process, and then you'd let the thing cool down for a couple of days and, and peel the bricks out brick by brick. And you didn't know if you were going to have something gorgeous or you didn't know if everything inside would have exploded um, or melted down or you just have some sort of, you know, like chemical disaster until you actually did that. And 
So it was, I think it was really interesting, probably a lot more informative to sort of my lens on uncertainty in the creative process, seeing my mom navigate the, being a craftsperson and devoting all of her energy to making something, knowing that part of her process was at the end, there was this really big thing that had to happen and it could, it could um, manifest in really creating something beautiful or completely tearing apart all the work you had put into it. Author Jonathan Fields joins us to talk about how to live a good life. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.